First the bayou, now the burrows. The lead starts right now. Tornadoes, flash floods, rivers overflowing in Philadelphia, rushing rapids in the New York City subway as the remains of Hurricane Ida paralyze the Northeast. The war over abortion rights escalating after the Supreme Court fails to stop a Texas law banning nearly all abortions. And the president tries to step in. Plus, school board meetings turning into slugfests, setting a stellar example for the children as some parents lose their minds over masks. Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman. Jake Tapper is on assignment, and we do start with breaking news in the national lead in what has now become the deadliest part of Hurricane Ida's wrath across the United States. The death toll keeps climbing. At least 23 people now killed in the last 24 hours in the Northeast, hundreds more rescued. Scenes like this just aren't supposed to happen. That's floodwaters rushing through a home in Montclair, New Jersey. In New York, the rain fell so fast, it could have filled 50,000 Olympic-sized pools. And this is what happened when all the water pumps and the barrier walls and the sewer lines couldn't keep up. Watch. That's just unreal. One river near Philadelphia rose so high today, it flowed awfully close to traffic passing on the bridge above. And look at this. This is a minor league baseball stadium in Bridgewater, New Jersey. The water, at least five rows high. We want to go live now to CNN's Miguel Marquez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Miguel, this is, I got to say, one of the most trying days so many people around here can remember. It is stunning to see how much water came down so quickly into areas across the Northeast. This is the Raritan River. This is a park along the Raritan River, or it should be a park. It's completely inundated right now. That is the river beyond. It is still 10 to 15 feet above sea level right, or above flood level right now. The tide doesn't come in for isn't high till another hour and a half or so, so there may be even more flooding. This, as emergency crews are still getting out there, still trying to find people who are stuck. A river of water pours into a New York City subway station, one of many similar scenes there as the remnants of Ida leads to historic flooding. Unprecedented is almost an understatement. This is you know, the first time ever we've had a flash flood emergency declared. Today, the death toll continues to rise. Among the victims, a two-year-old. This has been a, a biblical storm by, by every means. In Queens, the New York Police Department commissioner says at least eight people died in their basements of homes inundated with water. The roads everywhere I saw coming out of the airport and beyond flooded. Uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of cars marooned, stranded. Across the Big Apple, first responders rescued hundreds from submerged cars, including commuters stuck in stopped subway trains. Uh, roughly between somewhere between 15 and 20 trains did get stranded and folks needed to be rescued. Across the Northeast, drivers forced to leave their vehicles on roads overcome by floodwaters, with active rescues still underway in parts of Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey. That's where at least 25 homes were destroyed or badly damaged by a tornado. An extraordinary, sadly tragic, historic 24 hours in New Jersey. Look on either side of us right now in the impact uh, of this, these tornadoes that touched down. 
in this county. In Elizabeth, New Jersey, at least four people drowned in an apartment complex. Officials say the victims all lived at the garden level. Apartments next to the Elizabeth River, which rose more than eight feet at its peak last night. In Westchester County, some streets remain underwater. State police and our rescue teams had to rescue over 100 people in Westchester and Rockland County alone. New York Governor Kathy Hochul says it's still not clear whether this catastrophic flooding could have been predicted. I know I deployed resources yesterday morning. But we did not know that between 8.50 and 9.50 p.m. last night that the heavens would literally open up and bring Niagara Falls-level water to the streets of New York. Could that have been anticipated? I want to find out. In Central Park, 5.2 inches of rain fell in just three hours, a one-in-500-year rainfall event, something officials say is only getting worse because of climate change. We are in a whole new world now, and this is a reality we have to face. So what you are looking at now is the Memorial Parkway or Highway 18, just next to the Raritan River here in New Brunswick, just just right next to uh, Rutgers University here. You can see the Exxon station there is also flooded. What is most stunning about seeing the level of water here is it hasn't receded since its high point. Again, high tide in about an hour and a half here. Maybe it will start to go down then, but there is just so much water dumped in the system so quickly, they are having a hard time dealing with it. And seeing the number of emergency vehicles either going by or in the air still, pretty stunning as well. John? I have to say, Miguel, the images are just stunning, almost unreal in some places, but I know they're real because I had to make my way through it uh, myself this morning. Just crazy. Thank you so much for your reporting. I want to bring in George Latimer now. He is the county executive for Westchester County, which is just a few train stops north of Manhattan. Executive, thank you so much for being with us. You reported one one person died in your county after they left their car and they got caught in the flash flooding. And there was another passenger in that car that's still missing. Any update on that situation? And could there be others still unaccounted for at this point? It's John, I'm afraid the news is not good. It appears that we have three uh, deaths now that we can attribute to exactly what you described, people that were in high water and uh, got out of their cars and uh, lost their lives. It's almost impossible to imagine you drive on certain streets or roads all the time, and you can't imagine that this could possibly happen. We we don't know if that's the totality of our death toll, but it's a a tragedy nonetheless. And uh, and it came upon us, uh, you know, like the snap of our fingers. You know, I saw it with my own eyes as I made my way in this morning. You've noted that 200 cars at least were stranded overnight. I think I saw about 20 of them this morning before six. There it is. Uh, This is in Westchester. And these cars were actually pointed in the wrong direction. They were heading north in the southbound lane of the sawmill. And when you say there are now three people dead who got out of their cars in situations like this, it really is. Uh, it really is sad to learn that new information. How hard has it been to remove these cars from the roads to get traffic flowing again? And what kind of a problem has it caused? Well, you first have to let the waters recede so that you can get tow trucks to access the vehicles. Once the tow trucks can get in, and, and in uh, in our county and parts of our, of our state, we have these parkways that were built in the 1920s and 1930s. They don't have the interstate highway uh, clearances on bridges nor access. So it's hard to get a big vehicle into some of these locations. And then one by one, they have to be slowly taken out to free up the roadway. The, the basic problem, you know, that we had was the speed with which the water came. 
uh, standing water went from zero to something significant in a matter of an hour. And many people who should otherwise know not to drive into standing water, they thought they could negotiate it. And of course they couldn't. You know, it's interesting. We heard the governor, Kathy Hochul, say she wanted to know whether or not people were prepared enough and the government was prepared enough. I know as a resident, I wasn't ready for this. I wasn't expecting this kind of catastrophe. Do you think that we were prepared? You know, John, I think organizationally we were. We had our police and our emergency services, people at the ready, and we had pumps and so forth. I think two things happened, certainly in our area, and it may be true in other parts uh, of New York or neighboring communities. Number one, we got Hurricane Henri come through with much fanfare 10 days ago, a week ago, and it wasn't as dramatic an effect. And so I think like the boy who cried wolf, it didn't seem like uh, Ida would be that important since there was so much hype on Henri and Henri was not as devastated. There was no loss of life in Westchester and Henri. And the second thing is Ida uh, landed in New Orleans. And what we always hear about hurricanes is once it lands, it loses its force. We know that New Orleans was, was terribly affected by this. And as it moved over land up the Mississippi River Valley, I think many residents felt, well, it'll be a rainstorm when it gets here and that's it. More often than not, that's how these hurricanes look after they go over land. But Ida still had a significant punch when it hit uh, the New York metropolitan area. What's and the, uh, I think many individuals didn't see it. What's the biggest challenge facing you tonight? Well, in drying out, we have to get things back to normal as we can. We've made a lot of progress today. Uh, as we go through some of the buildings that were affected uh, by this, we, we hope we don't find any situations like the one you described in Elizabeth, New Jersey, people living in basement apartments, that, uh, you know, uh, wound up being trapped by the water. So we hope that uh, the total of loss of life stays at where we are today and we can get everybody back to normal by tomorrow. George Latimer, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, John. So the expressway is now the river in Philadelphia. The unbelievable flooding and dangerous rescues that are underway right now, that's next. And the backlash over the Texas ban on abortions. President Biden is now promising to fight it after the Supreme Court failed to stop it. But honestly, what can President Biden really do? More breaking news in the national lead. These are live pictures from Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. This is where the tornadoes touched down and tore through. Again, this was the wind. The problem here was the wind from this storm that has really devastated huge swaths of the Northeast. So you can see the damage there. And for much of the other parts of the area, the water has been the real issue. Nonstop rescues as floodwaters swamp the Philadelphia area today. At least 100 people, 100 people rescued so far as crews in small boats delicately pulled their families, pulled families from homes all day. The Schuylkill River rose about 16 feet above flood levels. That's taller than two and a half Allen Iversons, nearly three Jake Tappers, as long as we're making Philadelphia references. Joining me now is Pete Muntean, live in Philadelphia. Pete, you've been there all day, and some of the things we've seen behind you have really been stunning. Uh, How bad is it? How long will it take to clean up? Well, John, we're really not out of the danger zone here along the Schuylkill River just yet, and we're just now getting an idea of how extreme the cleanup will be here. This is all of the debris, all of the junk, tires, refrigerators, a broken jet ski, tree limbs, really, as far as the eye can see here, 
uh, along the Schuylkill River, bumping up against the waterworks here. This is actually a wedding venue, and they've been setting up for a wedding all day. And you can see, sort of as you pan right here, where the water was along that frontage there, that concrete wall, just above those little half windows, that is where the Schuylkill River crested here at a, just shy of 17 feet only this morning. Right now, it is down about to 14 feet. Flood stage here is about nine feet. So the National Weather Service says we will not be out of flood stage along the Schuylkill River until after midnight. The flood warning here in place until seven tomorrow morning. The Martin Luther King Jr. Bridge there is closed. Huge impact here in Pennsylvania. Also, 76 is also a parking lot where it meets with 676, a main interchange in the city. That is flooded because the pumping station that is there is also underwater. 300 roads closed in Pennsylvania alone. A huge impact here. And this is going to be a massive cleanup that's going to cost millions, tens of millions, if not billions, John. I can't believe how close the water is to that bridge there, Pete. And the idea that you're at a wedding venue, I'm sure the bride and groom can console themselves. This is somehow good luck, I suppose. Listen, t tell us more about the water rescues that have been going on all day and are still going on. Well, we know from Governor Tom Wolf's administration that there were 500 calls for water rescues in Montgomery County alone. We heard from the mayor of Bridgeport, Pennsylvania earlier, that is up the Schuylkill River here. He said that dozens of homes have been washed away. There were dozens of water rescues there alone. This goes beyond just Philadelphia. Also, Conshohocken, Maniunk. This has a huge impact here along the Schuylkill River and really statewide, also even downstream from the Schuylkill in Wilmington. So there's a lot, of ha a lot happening here in the Philadelphia area and beyond. Pete Muntean in Philadelphia. Terrific work. Thank you so much, Pete. Meantime, the roar of Hurricane Ida replaced by the hum of generators with close to a million people still without power in Louisiana. Now fuel and food are running low. We are back with breaking news in our national lead. Moments ago, we learned the death toll is now 26 people killed after the horrific flooding in New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. This afternoon, President Biden addressed Hurricane Ida's wrath across the entire eastern seaboard as he prepares to visit the Gulf Coast tomorrow. CNN's Phil Mattingly live at the White House for us. Phil, what was President Biden's message today? You know, the president framed it as a round-the-clock effort for the White House, but what you've seen from this federal government is really an all-hands-on-deck effort. Obviously, the president and the White House are keenly focused on this issue, repeated briefings over the course of the last several days, the president traveling to the Gulf Coast tomorrow, but also when you look agency by agency, you get a sense of the scale, not just of the storm, but the effort to try and counter the after-effects of that storm that have been so visceral over the course of the last several days. The FCC working to try and get cell phone service restored, the president working with the Department of Energy to ensure gas is available, Department of Transportation as well, tapping Cedric Richmond, one of his top advisors at the White House, a former Louisiana congressman, to kind of lead the efforts from here, but also a personal touch. The president on the phone repeatedly with governors, with state officials, with local officials, telling them whatever they need, make sure they get that message to the White House and the White House will deliver. The president recognizes in situations like this, pretty much the only thing that can help is the federal government, John. Phil Mattingly, and there is so much need. Thank you so much, Phil. The desperate situation in Louisiana turning even more grim. Temperatures there are soaring, and more than 900,000 customers across the state are still without power. To make matters worse, two-thirds of the gas stations in New Orleans and Baton Rouge 
are now out of gas. CNN's Brian Todd is live in Kenner, which is just outside New Orleans. And Brian, you've been following power crews all day. Any progress? There is some progress, John, but it is a slow grind of progress and a dangerous one. Take a look at this. This is William Street in Kenner. Look at this. Traffic and pedestrians have to navigate around these down power lines here. The poles leaning over. Those could be uh, active electrified lines right there. You've got poles down over there. And just beyond that, we saw half a pole hanging completely suspended by wires. So this is the kind of stuff that people all over southeastern Louisiana are navigating. We went to a neighborhood at New Orleans East a short time ago. We talked to one resident there about what it's like to be without power. Take a listen. Guys, I'll fight some fish and make you some jambalaya get my pole straight. <laughs> so, so the reason they're here is because you flagged a pickup truck Absolutely. and got these guys Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Absolutely. What'd you say to them when you first saw them? When I first saw them, say, hey, you fix my pole, I get you some lunch. Now, that was a gentleman named Larry Jackson. We cannot really confirm that uh, his offer of lunch was the reason that that power crew came to his street. They were probably sweeping that neighborhood anyway. But it gives you an indication of kind of just how desperate people are for power and that, that they take measures into their own hands. Here's another gentleman from that same street who told us what he had to sacrifice, basically, as he was waiting for the power to turn on. What's it like? Heated, hot. As you can see, the sweat just pouring. You know, um, get a little AC in the car, go back inside, but for the most part, just hot. Food just went bad. I, I threw away maybe like $500 worth of food. Um, had to go to Mississippi to get ice. Yeah, I had to go to Mississippi to get ice and groceries and gas. Going to Mississippi to get ice, groceries, and gas, that is kind of what is going on here. There's a lot of people going through things like that. We do have word from Entergy, Louisiana, uh, that about 137,000 customers have had their power restored. They're working this little by little. They say that at least 10 hospitals have had their power restored in eastern Louisiana, John. So, again, a slow grind. They are working around the clock. They're getting there, but it is slow, and it's not coming fast enough for any of these residents. Yeah, the progress is welcome, but more is needed. Brian Todd, thank you so much for your reporting. The Supreme Court leaves the strictest abortion ban in the country in place. What does that mean for the future of abortion rights in the U.S.? In our politics lead, the strictest abortion ban in the country is not going anywhere for now. The Supreme Court formally denied a request to freeze a Texas law banning most abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy, which is before many women even know they're pregnant sparking a harsh rebuke from President Biden. To be clear, Roe versus Wade has been upended in Texas, at least for now. Let's discuss with CNN Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue. Ariane, this was a 5-4 vote with Chief Justice John Roberts siding with the court's three liberal justices, but still not enough. What did the majority say? Right. Well, this majority looked at this law and said, look, we're not going to rule on the constitutionality right now. But the abortion clinics behind this, they haven't shown yet uh, that they have been harmed. Let's let the law go into effect and let the appeals process play out. And that's when the firestorm began, uh, no less starting with Chief Justice John Roberts, no fan of abortion rights. Uh, Roberts there, but he sided with the liberals and he said, let's figure out the procedural problems and then decide whether the law should go into effect. Uh, but the liberals they were less guarded than even the chief. Justice Sonia Sotomayor was as mad as I've seen her in an opinion. She uh, really uh, 
uh, was furious here. She said a majority of justices have opted to bury their heads in the sand. Taken together, the act is a breathtaking act of defiance of the Constitution, of the court's precedent, and of the rights of women seeking abortions throughout Texas. So the liberals, they are calling out the Texas uh, uh, legislature. They're calling out uh, the majority of the Supreme Court. But on the ground in Texas, here's the dilemma. How do you appeal a law uh, that uh, bars a procedure that is no longer being carried out? That's their problem. How do they go forward even with the appeal, John? What's the White House saying about it, Ariane? Right. Well, President Biden did come out uh, and he issued a very strong statement himself. He said uh, rather than use its supreme authority to ensure justice could be fairly sought, the highest court of our land will allow millions of women in Texas in need of critical reproductive care to suffer while courts sift through procedural complexities. Uh, the DO DOJ also weighed in. So what does this mean for Roe? Well, Roe in Texas right now is a dead letter. And frankly, uh, this uh, ruling by the Supreme Court is not going to only embolden other states, but it's going to embolden other lower courts. The Supreme Court, in a way, has spoken here. So in a way, what they've done, at least in Texas, is barred most abortions, even while Roe is still on the books. So that's why this has all been so extraordinary. Extraordinary indeed. Ariane DeVoke, thank you so much for that. I want to discuss this further. Uh, Hillary Rosen, and the conservative majority wrote that while the abortion providers raised, quote, serious questions regarding the constitutionality of the Texas law, they had not met a burden that would allow the court to block it at this time. Basically saying on a technicality, they're going to let it stand for now. Do you believe the for now part or do you think this is just the beginning of something that will get much bigger? No, and I don't think Justice uh, Roberts believes the for now part, which is why he came uh, and sided with. Uh, the liberals on the court. Look, you know, this is what we expected. I remember so well back in, you know, 2017, when millions of women and, and um, their families marched on Washington and on 50 states, you know, on January 19th, the day before Donald Trump was elected, uh, was inaugurated president. And Everybody said, oh, no, no, you're exaggerating. Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. Women's rights are not going to be taken away, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, lo and behold, three Supreme Court uh, appointments later, this is where we are. So I I think we are seeing a, you know, the harbinger of of this to come. And, and states are going to fly with this and across the country. And it's going to affect poor women the most. Essie Cup, it's interesting, Hillary said, that this is what was expected. Uh, Republican Senator Susan Collins from Maine, an abortion rights supporter, apparently didn't expect it, or at least that's what she said out loud when Dana Bash questioned her during the confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh before he was confirmed to the Supreme Court. She said that Kavanaugh wouldn't overturn Roe versus Wade. Listen. I do not believe that Brett Kavanaugh will overturn His precedents Roe are overturned. He says for a president, a long-established president like Roe, to be overturned, it would have to have been grievously wrong and deeply inconsistent. So, S.E., you know, as Ariane reported, Roe versus Wade is a dead letter in the state of Texas. So how does Susan Collins explain that? Yeah, I think one explanation could could be naivete. Um, it could also be wishful thinking, but also not being able to imagine the mechanism by which the courts could actually allow this kind of chaotic, non-ruling ruling 
to go forward. Um, you know, these are these are nine smart people, and you'd think that they would hand Texas and Texas women um, a bit more of uh, you know stability and a roadmap going forward. But there are all kinds of problems with this law. I say that as a pro-life person. Um, I, I'm with the majority of Americans who believe Roe v. Wade is settled law and abortion should be legal, safe, and rare. And especially this law um, makes abortion essentially illegal, unsafe, and impossible. And I don't think that's good for women. It also just feels really punitive, John, when you're forcing women to carry the child of their rapist or their brother or their father. That does not seem compassionate. And then finally, the idea that we're going to empower citizens, vigilante citizens, to turn in women who have illegally had abortions just feels at a at, at almost the worst time empowering the worst kinds of people. You know, as we said, the rights that have been afforded by Roe versus Wade since the 1970s do not exist this afternoon yeah. in Texas. They just don't. Um, and Hillary. President Biden said he's going to pressure Congress to codify the right to abortion into law. But Democrats don't have enough votes in the Senate to make that happen. How much of this is the consequence of Democrats losing elections? Well, of course, it's all the consequence of losing elections in Texas. You know, the Republicans have taken over the Texas legislature for for 20 years. And that's this is that consequence. And I think, you know, we have despite the fact, like Essie says, a pro-life woman, um, but believes that women ought to be able to make this choice, there is a um, there is a politic everywhere. And I think theirs is going to add one more thing to the pressure on Senate Democrats around the filibuster over the next year, because the prospect of losing this fundamental right to make decisions for your own body is just a, a, a paramount um, decision, I think, for, for women across the country, Republicans, independents, and Democrats. And so the pressure on Senate Democrats now, mm-hmm. it was voting rights. It was gun rights. It was, you know, um, daycare and, I, and budget um, things. But, you know, when you get to this and those are the consequences, I just don't see how the dam doesn't break at some point. I also just think, John, I'm, quickly, you know, if you if you believe in the Constitution, right, and you believe in settled law, whether that's Roe v. Wade or the Second Amendment, a- at some point you have to acknowledge this is the this is the country we live in, and so making federal law illegal in some places and then punitive and unsafe for people um, just isn't practical and it's not responsible. It's interesting to see how much of an animating force this now becomes perhaps for the left, where abortion has been more animating for the right over the last several decades. S.E. Cup, Hillary Rosen, thank you both very much for this. Sure. School board members getting death threats and being called demonic entities, all because they want their kids to wear masks. How back to school has become the latest bizarre battleground in the pandemic. And our health lead out of control. While a clear majority of Americans support masks in schools, a vocal, sometimes threatening, sometimes violent minority turning what are normally quiet civil school board meetings into screaming matches and even all out brawls. CNN's Tom Foreman looks at how this out of control minority has escalated the issue of masks in schools to the point of violence. Please. Where, where is our 
Back to school has become a battle cry in the COVID wars everywhere. You will never be allowed in public again. With a school board in Oregon firing the local superintendent amid anger and tears. Officials are not saying why, but the move came shortly after the super said classes would comply with this order from the governor. Moving forward for the immediate future, masks will be required in all indoor public settings. School board meetings coast to coast are erupting. Some were already in uproars over critical race theory and transgender rights. I am disgusted by your bigotry and your depravity. But now the fight is over vaccinations and masks. Never mind that polls show most Americans broadly support the idea of masking in schools. Teachers and health officials are being attacked for even trying to enforce such safety measures. In Florida, a man opposed to masking was arrested after authorities say he physically clashed with a student. Public meetings there have filled with rage. These are demonic entities in all the school boards of all the United States of America, and all of us Christians will be sticking together to take them all out. All the police officers that kick us out for our First Amendment right will also be going down with them. Do you understand? In Pennsylvania, a school board member resigned, saying he'd received death threats from the warring factions. While in Wisconsin, three board members stepped down, saying the job of tending to serious school matters was becoming toxic and impossible to do. We didn't get to the, to the point of fisticuffs, but was there lots of vitriol and a lot of shouting and a lot of disruptive, disrespectful behavior? Yes, that, that did occur. And on it goes from Maine to Michigan, Kansas to California, Arizona to Alaska. Kids are getting an up-close lesson in anti-social studies. I've already told the schools that my children won't be wearing masks. Amid wildly differing views over what it means to be a good American. Make no mistake about it, there are some protesters out there in favor of masks, but the headlines show most of these clashes are being driven by, as you note, John, a minority that is saying their sense of freedom matters more than these proven health measures to protect all the public and even to protect their own children. John? The kids caught in the middle. Thank you so much, Tom Foreman. All right, CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins me now. Sanjay, we did learn some new things about COVID in children today at the White House briefing. What can you tell us? Well, I mean, the numbers uh, have gone up significantly. When we look at the number of kids who've been diagnosed with COVID, it's been a fourfold increase, roughly, we can show you uh, just over the past month or so. Take a look. I mean, that's obviously not the direction you want to be going. That's a pretty steep slope. And the concern is that it will continue to go up. Some projections, 75% of K through 12 students could be uh, exposed within the next three months. Two other things jumped out at me, John. One is that you're starting to see a definitive split in terms of the impact of the vaccinations on kids. Vaccinated, uh, you were ten, if you were unvaccinated, you were 10 times more likely to be hospitalized versus if you were vaccinated, and this is for kids 17 and younger. And also the case rates, I just showed you those, but the case rates, if to put it in more context, they're starting to approximate now adults. We kept saying kids are far less likely to get infected, true. But now, when you look at what's happening, at least for 12 to 17-year-olds, it's getting very similar to what adults, uh, you know, the case rate for adults. So for kids under 12, 
the vaccine, when it's approved, if it's approved, could make a new di- big difference, I should say. It isn't yet. And we have new reporting, Sanjay, on why it's taking so much longer for children than it is for adults. Yeah, I mean, one, one big thing, and, and maybe this is an obvious thing, is that the FDA really cannot act on this until all the data is submitted. So we're learning it's a bit of a circular thing. The companies, uh, you know, they say, well, here's the data we have. The FDA says, well, we need more data. Not surprising that it's kids because kids are less likely to get sick. So the bar has to be higher. They want six months of safety data, John, as opposed to, you remember, two months as it was for adults at the end of last year. So it's just going to take longer. But when we look at the timeline, you can see it there. The data for Pfizer, at least expected in September, when we looked at previous data submissions and then the time course of how long it took to get to EUA, maybe a couple of weeks after that, it could go that quickly. We'll see. But, you know, sort of projections are sometime late September, early October, sometime in the fall. Parents are getting anxious, to say the least. Uh, Sanjay, we're learning just how many people in the U.S. are estimated to have antibodies to COVID-19. That includes, I imagine, vaccines and people who've been infected before. Um, So what does this say about the chances of reaching, if it's still possible, herd immunity? Well, let me show you this graph because I find this really interesting. Um, There was a study, I'll tell you, as you're looking at this graph, back in May of this year, saying maybe 150 million people, roughly half the country, a little less, have been exposed to the virus. Uh, 150 million. Now we're saying there's around 20% that have detectable antibodies. So one time it was closer to 45%, and now it's 20%, which gives you some idea that natural immunity, which is the line sort of at the bottom there, is very significant, but those antibodies do seem to wane. We're about 80% of people in the country right now have antibodies, The majority, again, as you see on that graph, are from vaccines. We don't know, to be just perfectly honest, we don't know exactly what herd immunity means here. For measles, for example, to get to herd immunity, which is because measles is so contagious, you need well over 90% of people having immunity. It may be closer to that here with this virus as well, but one we'll really know, John, is when the cases start to come down again, which they may do over the next several weeks. Let's hope. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Got it. Thank you. America's longest war is over. Coming up next, CNN just spoke to the mission commander of the last flights out of Kabul. What it was like for him next. 